welcome everyone to another episode of the Forward Together podcast. Um, my name is Jared Dean. I'm joined today by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Gerard. Good stuff, good stuff. So, Paul, today we have uh, another conversation with a political leader. This time it's Colin Eastwood from the SDLP. And I think we need a wee reminder at the, at the start of this conversation about an, another role that you have as well. Yes, I need to declare um, a, a, an interest here, which is that um, as well as doing podcasts for yourself, uh, I'm also engaged 28 hours a week for Sinead McLaughlin as an advisor to her. And she is one of the SDLP MLAs for the FOIL constituency. Therefore, I have a party connection with Colin Eastwood, the party leader. But having said that, I should add that I have tried throughout this series to be impartial and to take the same approach to all people uh, without uh, showing any party bias. Yeah, and I think you've achieved it. You haven't you haven't shown any bias that I've been aware of anyway. And so you, you do have a, I suppose it adds an extra element to this conversation too. And, and that, um, that role that you play with the SDLP and Collins, the leader of the party, but you still hold them to account on a, a couple of things, which is really interesting. So Paul, we, we start the conversation, um, or you start the conversation with Colin asking him about the past, um, as we have done with all our political leaders as well. And Colin starts by talking about the importance of truth and the importance of truth in particular for victims. Yeah, and, and it's important to put this in the context of the fact that the, the interview was conducted a number of weeks ago. So it was it was predating the, 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 the prosecution announcement in relation to the soldiers on uh, Bloody Sunday and Daniel Haggerty. Um, yeah, uh, this came out of the, the fact that we had in the previous series of podcast conversations, discussions with people about how we need to deal with the past. And one of the things that was said is that parties need to reflect on their own histories and whether they've actually been responsible for creating the situation today, whether they've got anything to be, feel guilty about, but also about how we treat the victims. And, and Colm is very clear that we have to have truth about the past. And perhaps it's fair to say that there's a, a, there's a lack of certainty and honesty in terms of the past. Yeah, okay. Um, we also, you, you then go on to ask them about reforms and reforms within the system, as we've asked everyone. Um, and he talks about educational reform. And Colin goes on to say, education reform what we tend to focus on here is the transfer system we also talk about integration but what we don't talk about is the curriculum and maybe we need to look at that because he says we're teaching people their own things yeah i i was impressed by that response actually um i i think he's absolutely right it's not something i spend very much time thinking about but i mean yes i mean the curriculum especially in northern ireland uh, is it sufficiently balanced in order to enable uh, pupils to to learn objectively about the history of Northern Ireland. Is it possible to objectively learn the history of Northern Ireland? Uh, we've had lots of discussions around: should we recognise that there are different versions, and we tell people about those different versions, or, or should we try to objectively tell the story of what's happened? But it goes beyond that, which is also: are we sufficiently teaching uh, pupils what they need to know for their lives? Certainly, as a parent, I've always felt that my children didn't learn everything they needed to, to, to move into the world of adulthood. Uh, there's an expectation that parents are going to pass that information on to their uh, offspring, but not all parents will, will feel able to do that. And that also that is based on their own personal knowledge, skills and experience. 
And we then have the issue that we have repeatedly across all of these podcasts, Gerard, which is, are we too focused on encouraging academic excellence at the expense of vocational skills? And do we have a structure of, of schooling which makes children feel as if they failed if they haven't passed the, uh, the academic selection test and therefore they've got no real future? And do we undervalue vocational skills? I mean, it's, these are big questions really, which actually do influence our economy, uh, the structure of our social society uh, and, and how we move forward. Yeah, and, and, and on moving forward as well, Colin saying, one of the areas that we really need to focus on is health. You know, the fact that he says that our waiting lists are, what, 100 times worse than parts of England and stuff. It's just crazy stuff. But he, what he is saying is park the politics when it comes to health. Just deal with the issues and let's create a society that's where everyone is at least healthier and things get dealt with. Yeah, I, I must admit, I'm not particularly convinced by the, the argument about part of the politics because, I, I, you know, it feels to me very much as if the, how we manage the health service is very much part of uh, the political system. I think what he really means is that the, the party shouldn't be scoring party political points off each other. And actually, everyone has to agree to get on with reforming the health system, which actually, I think, if you look objectively, yeah, we do. We have to get on and change it because this is a system that's failing far too many people and causing far too many people to die young. Okay, well, let, let's hear the chat with Colin now. Thanks very much for doing this, Colin. Let's head in and looking at it from a political point of view, a party political point of view. How should the politics of the past be dealt with? In particular, to what extent should the parties accept responsibility in the same way that David Cameron did for past events and the previous leaders? Uh, that's a good question. I suppose um, I, I speak to victims all the time, uh, probably every day, and they all want different things. Uh, but I think the vast majority of, of them want truth. Um, and I think they're probably fed up with the big gestures and then nothing coming after. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the SDLP would apologise for, to be honest. I think some people have more more to apologise for than others. But I, I would much prefer that our energy was focused on not the big gestures, but actually getting things resolved for victims. Um, you know, there are people walking about or not able to walk about uh, right now, and they still can't get access to a victim's pension because of politics in between um, uh, Westminster and Stormont and between the DUP and Sinn Féin for a long number of months. Uh, so I think that needs resolved, and urgently. I also think we need to get back to Stormont House Agreement, which means we actually deliver for people in terms of truth, justice where possible. Uh, uh, and Stormont House Agreement isn't, isn't perfect, but at least it's an attempt um, to deal with some of these issues. And then, actually, what politics should do is get out of the way, um, is allow the processes to, to develop. Um, allow people to have access to those processes and to get as much truth and justice as possible. Now that requires um, the state and uh, paramilitary organisations to tell the truth um, as much as they have and that for me leaves me in a very cynical place that I don't want to be in because they've, they've, they've done everything they could possibly do for the past 20 years and more to deny people the truth. So um, and that's that's just where it is. I'm not overly confident about us getting that done. The British government have their, their statement last March was well, 
despicable, frankly, and they've done nothing since to engage with victims in a way that they should. I think they will try to rush something out before the summer, uh, before the summer recess in Westminster. Um, but I think it'll it'll largely end up being very unsatisfactory for victims. And I'm not, you know, I know the way that they're treating victims. They're treating the Irish government very badly. Uh, they're not speaking to us properly, in my view, in a detailed way about the issue, which gives me all sorts of concern about where victims will be left at the end of this. So it's a gloomy enough picture, and it's just not fair when you look. We're all told to move on, and that's right. We all want to, everyone wants to move on, but we've left behind the people who were hurt most um, by the past. And if anybody thinks that's a stable foundation for building uh, a reconciled future, I just think they're wrong. Uh, you can't walk away from this issue. It has to be dealt with. You can't draw a line on the sand because these, these are real people we're talking about. Uh, I don't want to be talking about the past, frankly, ever. I want to be moving on, talking about the future. But it has to be based on on looking after those people who were who were let down and um, and who were hurt and and left behind, and that's um, that's just the only moral way to do it, in my view. I'd put a bit of context behind the the question that I posed to you, Colm, uh, that came really from a conversation with Sophie Long, who's from a loyalist background, whose point, if I understand it correctly, was how can loyalists trust Sinn Fein? if they are not convinced that Sinn Féin regrets the activities of the provisionals in the past. But equally, I'm sure that Republicans would say, how can they be confident that uh, hardcore unionists wouldn't, if they had the ability, do the same things again as happened in the past? It's in that context of how do you build trust between political leaders if there's not genuine regret for events of the past? Well, I wish there was, um, because the violence of the past, whether it was kind of the violence of a state um, that, that oppressed people and kept them in their place as they saw it, or the violence of, of, of paramilitaries, the IRA or anybody else, I wish they did regret it, because it was morally wrong and also extremely counterproductive, um, and demonstrably so. I mean, the IRA lost um, very clearly. Uh, they won nothing other than, uh, and just a lot of lives were lost and a lot of people were in, in jail because of it. And I know it's not much more complicated than that. But um, I, I, I think we're on a fool's errand if we're trying to get people to um, to regret things that they, for their own political purposes, have to stand over. And and I don't think they do regret it either, is the, is the other point. Um, but I, I don't think we're going to get... I, I just genuinely don't believe that the thing is based upon forcing others to admit regret. Uh, one, it wouldn't be honest. And and two, I don't know where it gets us because I don't think we would believe them anyway. <laughs> so it, I, I just think we have to deal with the past for two reasons. One, the individual's concern, whether they were injured or family members of someone who's died. They just, they're the people who suffered more than any of the rest of us. And we all kind of carry this suffering uh, very likely, um, but the people who really suffered are, 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 have a real burden to carry. And I think, so for them, there needs to be as much truth as possible and justice where possible. And most people recognize that that's diminishing every day, the opportunity for justice diminishing every day. Um, but also for society. I mean, I, I think if we want to move on, the best way to do it is to open the books. Um, I, I genuinely think we're big enough uh, to take the truth. Um, people have made up their own versions of the truth anyway. Um, why would we not Why would we not give, give people whatever truth is available? Because 
if, if nothing else, it'll teach us never to do it again. Um, and and it's, it's not guaranteed that we won't do it to ourselves again and to each other again. Um, but the only way to get at that is to be true, to, to be straight about it with people. I remember being in Dachau um, concentration camp just outside Munich, and I was walking around, and it, it's 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 kind of it, it's it's a terrible experience, but really enlightening experience as well. I don't I, mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a concentration camp, but Auschwitz, yes, it's terrible. Auschwitz, yeah. I, I mean, I remember these school kids, really young school kids, were being taken around, and I was going, God, that's awful. And then I thought about it. And, well, they're not taking them around for no other reason but to tell them never to do it again. And unless you can see the ugliness and the horror of it, because um, uh, I think people have begun to take for granted the peace that we have um, and the progress that we've made. Um, as as patchy as that is, and as as um, you know, and I'm much more ambitious than just to have peace. Um, but we have to remember how hard it was to get. And so I, I think we need to be thinking. Um, about all that, the impact of not having the truth out there has on society and our ability to move forward. And our, you know, I think it stops us from 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 reconciling. I genuinely think the most truth possible is the best way to get at reconciliation and the best way to ensure we never do it again. Okay, so let's let's try and be positive and look for the the, the future rather than the past. Uh, we've had the Bengara review of the health services, which really has got mired. So what can we do to make sure that where we do have a process of review leading to reform, we actually undertake the reforms? And should we do something comparable to then go with other parts of the public sector, such as the education system? Uh, to your second question, absolutely. Um, but I also think, for good reason, we, we focus on two issues when it comes to education. We focus on transfer and we focus on integrated or not. And they're really important issues to be dealt with. But we never focus on curriculum, which I find weird. Um, the most important thing, uh, no matter what the setting is, the most important thing is what we're teaching kids. And what we're teaching kids is not um, uh, you know, the right curriculum for the coming economy. It's not even the right curriculum for the current economy. Um, and things are going to change massively in the next few years. And we're just not fit for purpose uh, on that at all, in my view. Um, but we do need to tackle the fact that we waste so much money teaching people in different settings. Um, and uh, and I, I think the transfer tests, I mean, remember Martin McGuinness telling us that, it was, that he'd scrapped 11 plus, well, it just got worse, um, where kids who could afford it got tutored because they couldn't get taught in school. They had to leave the school grounds to go and do, uh, to go and do their exam. But you know, transfer and, and selection still existed. Um, and, and still does to this day, and it needs to be scrapped. It's inhumane, in my view. Um, I'd much rather see a community-based system um, where people take more courses right up until the end, courses that are actually relevant to the economy. That is, it. In terms of health, I think I was the first politician in Northern Ireland to say, let's take the politics out of health, and it wasn't a line. <laughs> I genuinely believe it because... Um, I. I in the big conversation about the future of the Constitution, you know, everyone says the NHS is going to be a key issue. Well, I think it is. But if you're somebody waiting for waiting to see an orthopaedic uh, consultant for four years, I'm not sure your lived experience of the NHS is that good. Uh, everyone loves NHS workers, and rightly so. But we'd, I think we'd all like to see them have a much more support and much more resource in the system to allow them to do their jobs properly. And we have, 
100 times worse waiting lists than England. You know, and we're, I think, about a 30th of their population. Uh, that's crazy. Um, uh, it's absolutely crazy. So we need, to, we need to resolve that. And the only way to do it, frankly, is not to give a minister what is seen as a poison chalice, chalice and then beat them up every time they try to make a hard decision. Uh, so we need to all agree uh, to bingo and mark two probably after COVID, but we all need to agree and get on with it. And I would make that pledge, whether we were in government or opposition, that, and I've done this before, that we would support uh, whatever, whichever health minister it is, even when it's difficult um, to, to get the get the health service back in shape. So there's no good saying the health service is free at the point of delivery if you can't get access to that delivery and that is uh that's going to take an awful lot of difficult conversations and decisions uh, and as somebody who's been a you know elected representative for my own community my own city uh, for many years i you know i know how hard that is but we're all going to have to grow up on that and, and get on with it and whatever those difficult individual decisions are we're going to have to make them all right to put the politics back into the question column should the solution involve an all-Ireland service? To what extent should there be an increased cross-border cooperation? So my father lives a mile from the border in Eskaheen, just above Muff uh, in Donegal. And uh, he went, he had got sepsis just before Christmas and had to go to Alton Galvin, which is, you know, his closest hospital. And then he got a bill for hundreds of pounds. Uh, it's 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 nuts. He had to go to for another thing. He's not sick. He's very well actually, but he had to go uh, to procedure for a procedure in Dublin that he should have got done in Alton Galvin. Um, I know this is a small example, but it's crazy. I know people in the north of Donegal who are going to Galway uh, for basic biopsies, um, and I know we have the Northwest Cancer Centre, but it's nowhere near um, being utilised in the way that it should. Why would we not have an all-Ireland health system? I, mean, I think we should have an all-Ireland NHS. Um, and the Republic is beginning to move to that place, uh, which is very good. And it takes a long time to align two very different services. The basic principle should be free at the point of delivery and easy to access. Um, it's not easy to access if you have to travel on bad roads um, five or six hours when you might be suffering from cancer. Um, and, and on bumpy roads in a car. You know, so I don't think that's, or on a bus for some people. So it's not working as it is. Um, it, it, if we're worried about resource and everything else, well, the best way to do that is to pull your resource and to work together. And it's, it makes absolute common sense to do that on an all island basis. And in terms of the broader future of politics um, in the North column, how should we improve the engagement of people in the system? What systems do you think would work better than what we've got at the moment? Well, yes, people are disengaged and they're fed up and they're, they, they see a lack of delivery and that, that turns them off politics and turns them off the institutions of Stormont. Absolutely. I share that uh, frustration. Um, but the fact that we have an assembly with multi-seat constituencies, I think is a good thing because it means people can get access to their politicians and politicians have to offer access and be accessible. It has its downsides as we've seen in the South at times, um, but uh, that's all good. But we have never done the proper civic engagement that was promised as a result of the Good Friday Agreement. 
the Civic Forum uh, has gone. Uh, during the negotiations to bring back Stormont, we were very clear that there should be much more emphasis on, on civic engagement. Very little of that has happened. Um, uh, there are some very thorny issues that the Assembly just don't deal with. Uh, you know, abortion uh, is an example of that, but it's not the only example. We should be engaging, and the South have proven this works, we should be engaging with the public, because I think politicians sometimes have a view of where people are at, and they're frankly wrong a lot of the time. Um, the public are always ahead of, of, of politicians. Um, so I, I think we need to find all sorts of mechanisms for engaging people in not just big civic dialogues, but smaller versions of that, scoping out issues, trying to find ways of working together and busting some of the myths that I think lots of politicians have about where people are at uh, on, on, on some of these big ticket issues. So there's been suggestions that we should have quite a lot of citizens' assemblies rather than necessarily looking at big bang citizens' assemblies. Uh, Peter Sheridan has suggested a citizens' assembly in somewhere like Cregan to deal with issues of how you diffuse paramilitary uh, attraction for young uh, teenagers. Uh, Linda Irvine has talked about a citizens' assembly for people bringing people together from two sides of a peace wall so that they can talk together about how to bring down a peace wall safely. Is that type of thing that uh, attracts you? Uh, absolutely, um, because I think we would find fairly quickly that the uh, the issues in Craigan, for example, are much uh, are, are much more complicated than just getting people together to talk about paramilitarism. Um, we would need to be talking about poverty, about social exclusion, about drugs, uh, yes, about paramilitarism, but there, there's a reason that paramilitaries can get a grip on a community. Um, and, so I, and I think those types of engagements would bring out some of those issues uh, and maybe get policymakers to understand what the real issue is and that maybe whilst there always has to be a policing response to everything uh, when, when people break the law, but they're that maybe there, there are longer term, better solutions to just always think in, in security uh, terms. And one of the other ideas that Peter Sheridan has put forward in past interviews is the idea of a Department for Reconciliation to try and create more momentum behind integrated society, shared society. I mean, how do you think we can move society forward to, to bring people together better? Well, I mean, maybe I'm not, I, I would need to think about the idea of a department, I mean, uh, surely in a post-conflict society, every department should be a department for reconciliation. I mean, it should be ingrained in everything that we do. It frankly, isn't. And because we have a shared out society and a shared out government rather than a shared government. And like I always say this, the, the Good Friday Agreement has institutions, but that's all they are. Um, it's the spirit of, that underpins those institutions that has been lost, I think, along the way. And the fact that we have to compromise every day, we have to work together every day, we have to work towards reconciliation every day, and we have to remember how hard it was even to get to this point and not lose the progress. So that's about attitude. Um, and you can have a separate department if we want, and maybe that is the way to do it. But I would just implore politicians, um, particularly from the DUP and Sinn Féin, to remember the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement. Not just Don't just take part in the institutions of it. And I think we'd be a lot further along along the road if that, that spirit and attitude was brought every day um, to storm it. And, and let's not use, let's not keep using big issues that are, that are cultural touchstones to beat each other up with and divide. I mean, if you remember, we were out of Stormont for three years because of an Irish Language Act. There's no Irish Language Act. We'll be back a year or more. You know, 
sorry, I just wonder how you actually committed uh, Sinn Féin were the Irish Lion Jack, or were they just committed to the right? Um, uh, because we don't have one, uh, and, and, we're, and we're back in. So uh, all of that, we have to stop using those difficult issues as wage issues. We have to find ways of getting through them, getting over them, not avoiding them, not ignoring them. But it's just, it's just, an, it's an approach to politics that needs to change. I think rather than just more institutions. An alternative institutional suggestion, which I think in a sense you've already indicated isn't the way to achieve things, was put forward by Martin McGill, who argued that we should have, in the same way that there's uh, a movement for integrated education, there should also be a council for shared housing and a, a shared society. Do you think there's any validity in that idea? Uh, yes. Uh, like I'm not, I, again, I'm not, I'm not against new institutions. I'm just, I'm just saying they're never going to be enough in and of themselves. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's very important because if you think about it, um, integrated education works to a point uh, because it doesn't actually address the fact that kids are living separately. Uh, and even if they did go to, in, in many places, even if they did go to school together, they come back and live in separately in, 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 in their own communities. That's the real problem. And that's the biggest problem. It's actually more, it's, it, it's more fundamental even than education. And I, I'm very much in favour of integrated education. I don't see it as a, as a silver bullet, and I don't think anybody else does or should. Sometimes people from outside of Northern Ireland see it as a silver bullet more than people here. I think it's a very important part of it. Um, but we have to address where the problems are. I don't really think the problems around sectarianism are within education. Um, anybody can take me to an ed- to a school that is fostering sectarianism. Um, that's not to say that we should have divided the education system. I'm just saying that sometimes we focus on the wrong things too much. We, we should deal with the, the education issue, but there's, there are bigger, there are other issues out there that need to be resolved in housing and how we live, how we work, it, you know, is pretty fundamental. That has moved, it has moved a fair bit in the past 20 years. But the problem really is if you're from a working class community, um, you're more likely not to be living in, in a mixed community. And that's, I mean, we can't have a society where reconciliation is only done if you're middle class. Um, that's, you know, that that's a pretty, so all of this, in my view, is tied up and always has been, is tied up on economics, is tied up in poverty. Um, people who suffer the most are the people who, who lived in the most poverty, and they're the same people who suffered the most during the conflict. That is that is at the core of a lot of the things that we need to address. We're still not addressing uh, the economic inequalities, and therefore we're not addressing the reconciliation issue either. So how do we shift that? Um, we have to understand economics, first of all, and I don't think too many people around that executive table do, and that's not to um, diminish them, but I just don't understand how you can say that the economy is very important and then just leave it all to invest Northern Ireland uh, to go and get um, companies from America to come and set up in one part of Northern Ireland. That's not an economic strategy. An economic strategy, when you've had government on and off for 20-odd years here, that still doesn't have proper infrastructural connection to the Northwest, still doesn't have a university of a decent size in the northwest. I'm not just talking about dairy because I think if you're going to deal with the economy of the north generally, you have you can't leave an economic black spot in the west. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, so we, as you well know, um, we send thousands of students away every year. So this is this is this is a government now that says that 
the economy and creating jobs is its most important uh, uh, number one target. But then we cap the number of people who go to university in Northern Ireland. And we know, and you know well, that 80% of people who go to Liverpool, for example, or Manchester or London to go to university end up living within 20 miles of, of that university. Because obviously they, 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 they have, uh, they put down roots, get a job, get married, have kids and all that, and they never come home. And that is starving our economy of our best and our brightest. It's destroying our family life. It's wrecking our community. And we're just, we're still, I mean, emigration is still a massive issue in most of Northern Ireland. We're still um, rearing our kids for export. That's a tragedy in my view. And that's a direct result of government policy, which caps the number of student places we have here. I think that's madness. You talk to, so if you want to build an economy, let's talk to any any um, business person who wants to either start a business or bring in jobs to Northern Ireland. They tell you the number one thing is skills. But we're sending thousands of our skilled people away. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so if we did just that one thing, it would make a huge impact on the economy. If we recognise that the economy is changing um, and that we're still educating people for the old economy, uh, not even the current one, uh, then I think uh, that would make a big uh, impact as well. Um, uh, but, you know, so there's there's a number of different ways to tackle this. One is you have to create employment, create jobs, make them on there and more attractive. Um, the idea that, you know, we would do all that in isolation without looking across the border uh, at a very successful economy. I know some people want to run it down for political purposes, but if you look at where the Republic of Ireland was and look at where they are now, Everyone talks about corporation tax. Yes, it's important. I, think I wouldn't naturally be a supporter of low corporation tax. But what they also did is they invested massively in their people. They have an education system that is not perfect, but it's a baccalaureate system. It's largely a community system. People do lots of different courses right up to the end, and they're employed in the biggest company in the world. Uh, they've come here because, yes, tax, obviously, but also um, because the highly skilled English-speaking workforce. We now also have access. I know everyone wants to kick the protocol it's a result of Brexit. Uh, I hate Brexit. I wish it wasn't happening. But the protocol does give us an advantage. We can trade into the European market and the British market. Nobody else can do that. Our people are English-speaking. Uh, that's where most of the world's business is done. Uh, but we're still sending them all to Liverpool, many of them to Liverpool and Manchester to get educated. I think that's just crazy. So there is no economic strategy from Stormont. There just isn't. Um, it can't all be based on invest Northern Ireland bringing people to Belfast and asking them to set up call centres. That's not that is not the bit. And there are some very good companies that have come in, by the way. But that's no basis to build a balanced economy. So to summarise what you're saying there, Colm, you believe that if we have a stronger indigenous business sector here, using the skills that we uh, engage people with here, then actually that helps to overcome some of those sectarian differences or differences of separated communities yes i mean john hume always talked about this um it's all economic i mean there wouldn't have been a civil rights movement or a need for a civil rights movement if people hadn't been poor and hadn't been kept down uh, I, I think largely that would have been the same for, 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 for the troubles that followed and you can't reconcile people together in my view if we're still if they're trying to deal with uh, putting bread on the table so we have to give people opportunity, economic opportunity. And it, the two things aren't separate. Give people economic opportunity, we can get them upwardly mobile, we can uh, we can take the burden off 
the health service, because if you're poor, you're going to be sicker. We take the burden off um, the, the, the public sector. We can take the burden off the benefit system. We do all those things, get people doing well. And I think reconciliation can go hand in hand with that. Very hard um, to have any time to worry about reconciliation when you're spending your time trying to keep school uniforms on kids and get them out the door looking half decent and make sure they're fed and everything else. And that's poverty is a, is, is a real crisis and it is affecting everything uh, that goes on in our society. And it's not enough, not, not been talked about enough by, by most of our politicians. Colm Eastwood, thank you very much indeed. That's great. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Colm. Okay, Colm Eastwood there. Um, Paul, again, um, you ask him about citizen engagement and about the roles of, of citizens within society. And, and Colm's very clear. He says we need to engage people a lot, a lot more than we currently are because often society is a lot further ahead than politicians on many of the issues that, that need dealt with. Yeah, and, and once again, we have to go back to the issue around uh, the Good Friday Agreement uh, and the fact that uh, we, we lost the... the uh, the civic forum that was an integral part of the Good Friday Agreement, but isn't in there now. And we don't really have any structural mechanisms for engaging the wider population today, as was envisaged in the Good Friday Agreement. And we've already had a podcast which considered the, the role of the citizens' assemblies in, in the Republic of Ireland. And they seem to me to have been a very effective mechanism for changing some of the policy debates within the South to move the population forward. And here I'm thinking on the environment just as much as on abortion and on same-sex marriage. I mean, citizens' assemblies have been a, a fundamental part in the, uh, the process of change in the Republic of Ireland. Um, and I, I think we would be silly if we ignore that experience. Yeah. And one of the things that, that we've constantly also been talking about through this podcast is reconciliation and reconciling with the past. Colin clearly links this to the economy, to infrastructure, the need for better jobs. Um, he's saying it's really, really difficult to reconcile people when they're dealing with poverty, when they're dealing day to day. You know, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to look at the bigger picture when, you, when you're basically just surviving. Yeah, and, and the, the simple fact that we often ignore was that the troubles was essentially between two impoverished communities, two working class communities. It wasn't a conflict uh, fought out in terms of violence between people who are wealthy. It was actually a conflict that was between groups of people that are already poor and angry. And actually, we need to reflect much more on how we improve the, the prospects and the experience of people who are the, the, the most deprived in our society. And if we're going to achieve genuine reconciliation, that has to involve giving people a better standard of life and, and better access to uh, jobs and to the distribution of wealth. Yeah, that's it. Okay, well, thanks to that. And thanks for that, Paul. And thanks for having the conversation with Colin. Thanks to and must go to Colin for taking the time to have such an interesting conversation. Thanks as well to our funders, the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland, and to Michael Barwise for pulling this podcast together. Okay, and we'll chat these all again soon. Bye.